All right, church. So um, we're going to be right back here in James again. So James 3 is where we're going to be. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 12. So if you guys want to flip open as we pick right back up in here in James. So we're just going to, I can't do any background. I know some of you are visiting. Very grateful to have you. We've, uh, we've been in James now for a few weeks and unfortunately can't spend too much time in the background. But I think regardless, you'll be able to, to uh, be able to jump in with us and know where we're at. So we're just going to get right in here into three. So as, as we were in it last time, Manny finishes up uh, chapter 2, 14 through 26. And now we're here at the beginning of chapter 3. And James is going to be continuing here, church, to, to, to dive into his argument. And he's going to do so by changing course here. He's going to be bringing up a different subject now. And he's going to get into a, another issue, as we've talked about before. These scattered exiles from Jerusalem, these early Christians, are now out and about. They're, a lot of them are destitute and poor, and they're meeting together. And these leaders of these churches are in need of some help and how to direct all of them. And so here he's addressing another issue with them right here. And this one is going to, it should be kind of ironic to you as you read it because James just got done in chapter 2 talking about how faith without works is dead. And another way to think about that is whatever you say is worthless if it's not followed up by your works. That it actually proves your faith is dead, your faith isn't alive, and your faith isn't working just because you say certain things. But now he's going to get into speech. <laughs> and he's not contradicting himself, right? Last week, James is relating speech to one's actions and showing you can say all the right things, but if your actions don't follow from the things that you say, it makes what you're saying worthless. But now James is going to say that doesn't mean speech is worthless. That doesn't mean the tongue is worthless. It doesn't mean, well, Maybe I slip up here and there. I say what I want. I do what I want, but my actions are good and pure. Brethren, it doesn't work like that. It goes both ways. And so James here is going to dive right into that for us this morning. The issue is going to come down to the tongue. And this whole thing, that's why I read James 3.6, the tongue is a fire. That's the problem that he's going to be addressing here is that the tongue is a fire. So as we think about this, <clears throat> and we jump into this. What he's going to be able to demonstrate, I think, in this section, and Manny's going to conclude this section in three and kind of draw out some of these conclusions a little bit more. But brethren, speech, whatever flows from the mouth, and we've heard this in something like Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 15. Jesus says it over and over again. What is an indication of your heart? what proceeds from your mouth. Jesus says what comes out of the mouth is something that comes from the heart. And brethren, speech, as we need to be drawn in our attention to this morning, is speech, what comes from our mouth. And, what that, and this is going to be important. It's not only what comes from our mouth. Brethren, it's the results of our speech too. What, what, whatever is determinative of our speech. If I say something and something happens... James is going to be warning us of a certain kind of speech and its results. So we need to think this morning, okay, we're going to be talking about the tongue. And James is going to have for us that, brethren. Not only do we need to be cautious about what we say, but we need to be 
cautious in the fact that we should know beforehand, whatever I say will have an effect. So if I could put it to you guys this morning, there's no such thing as empty words. There's no such thing as neutral words. There's no such thing as just general words that will never impact anybody, even down to the last comment that you make about something. And brethren, ultimately, he's going to show. What you say is determinative of your heart. It's determinative of your faith. And it's also, brethren, this is important too. He's not just individualizing this. What we say is going to be determinative of our church. And as he says there right at the beginning, it's going to be determinative of our salvation. Or as he says there, for you know that we who teach will be what? Judged more severely. Brethren, it's going to come down to a judgment either for our salvation or for our good, for us, not just as individuals, but as a body. So let's read this section. I want to read all 12 verses and then um, I'll kind of show you our breakup of the verses this morning and then we'll kind of jump into these verses. Now, uh, just a little note about this. In some of these other sections, you know, we've really had to explain a few parts here and there. And there will be a small section here where I think some explanation is due. But brethren, most of this this morning does not require any kind of deep dive into what is actually said. Really, the, the, the heart of this and what I have a burden for this morning, and I, and I hope the Lord has for us, is that we would apply these kinds of things. And we would think about how this applies to us in our life. So let's look here at chapter 3, verse 1. If you guys have your Bibles, read, well, don't read out loud, but read along in your mind with me. So James 3, I'm going to start here in verse 1 and go to 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire! And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Amen. So want to divide this up for us in three very small sections, and it's going to build. This, 
this section right here is just one long continuous argument. And what's really nice about James is he kind of does this all throughout the book. He gives one central thing, and then he just goes on explaining how that's unfolding in the church. And he's going to give examples. He's also going to give their failures. And then he's going to warn them. And he does this a lot. You get this re repetition here. So right here at the beginning, we're going to get it in verse 1 and 2 of what is the center of this section in James. So that's how we're going to divide this up. First two verses, we're going to receive the main instruction. And the reason for it is going to be this. Many should not teach because the body, and I think there he's talking about the church, the body must be bridled, or to put that in a different word, the body must be controlled, self-controlled. So that'll be verses 1 and 2. So second part there in verse 3, James is going to display that reality of the command, where he says, not many of you should teach. There's the command. It's in the negative, but it's a command. And then in 3 to 5, he's going to explain why. He's going to give examples as to, what does speech do? And he's going to show through those two vivid examples that the tongue is a guider. <laughs> it, it's a, it, it can put people in directions, but as he's going to show, it all depends upon the person speaking as to which direction you're going to be going, right? It doesn't do you any good to just say, well, I can go left or I can go right. The question should is, should I go right or should I go left? So that'll be verses 3 to 5. And then this last section, which is honestly the, the, the hard-hitting section right here, 6 through 12. He's going to warn of this, brethren. He's going to warn the tongue poses. And I want to be really clear, and you think about this, because I don't think we think about speech like this very often. He's going to warn us that the tongue poses an imminent threat. What do I mean when I say imminent it's near. It's very close. It's about to happen. And so and I want to be very clear on that because I think everyone in here knows the tongue can pose a problem, right? And, and, and no, I don't think I have to explain that to anybody. But brethren, if we thought what I say next could light the whole thing on fire like that, I think we would be a lot more cautious of just letting whatever comes out of our mouth come out. And he's going to warn us of this. Brethren, it's not just that it's a fire. It's not that it just steers the whole body. It's not that it's just poison, but it can go up like that. And he's warning, there's an imminent danger. These people are on the cusp of saying something that's going to drive the whole body. And, and it's, as he's going to say, it's going to light it a fire like a forest. So he's going to warn us, brethren, there's an imminent threat, not just to your soul. Yes, to your soul. Those who teach and open up their mouths, stricter judgment. You should be weary of your soul and get with God to know if I'm opening up my mouth, it's because I've been given authority or some proper uh, authority to be able to teach. But we should also think, brethren, when we say things, we affect everybody in here. Whether it's in your personal life or not, it will affect the church. It'll affect the body because it affects you. And brethren, can the arm and the leg be separated from one another, from the body? They can't. And so we need to hear his warning. It's a threat, brother, not only to soul, but to the body here as a whole. 
that a tongue that is untamed, that is unbridled, that is uncontrolled, will set on fire your whole course of life and will set on fire the whole body. So let's look. We'll break that up into those sections. I want to look right here at verses 1 to 2. Pull some of these things out. But I really just want to, I really want to dive into some application on this because I think James is trying to get his own people to think. He doesn't talk a lot about what they're actually doing, what's actually being said, and it doesn't matter because, brethren, the word comes to us and God's going to ask you, what are the things that you're saying? Brethren, only you know. So let's look here at verse 1 and 2. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, I'll get to this as we get to the last point. Because right here in verse 2, I just want to note this. You guys can see, you guys should know this by now. So if I ask, and I'm really actually hoping for an answer. Right there in verse 2, he says that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's what kind of man? Perfect, which means he's a? Yes, who said that? Amen. And you just came into the church. Welcome, brother. All right, so he's a mature man, right? He's a mature man. And James is writing this letter for what purpose? That we would all be what? Mature. So I want you to hold on to that thought because one, one thing you're going to think of when you start reading this is by the time he gets to six, he's talking about the tongue like it's an absolute thing. It's just full of poison. It can't do anything right. It's totally untamable. And you're thinking, well, is there any hope for the tongue then? And brethren, I, I, I think he's there. He's using hyperbole. He's using very electrifying speech because he's trying to get them to see this is you, right? Because in two... The one who doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, he's a mature man. This is the kind of thing that this letter is trying to make us to be. So it's possible. <laughs> Just want you to hear that. But I also, listen, I also do not want to take away from the force of what he's going to say here in 6. So I'll leave you with both of those things. But just so you know, so you're not confused. So there is that. But as, as we look at these two verses, I'll, I want to bring out just two things. Then I really want to ask us some pertinent application. This first one is this. Brethren, in first verse, not many should teach. Now, we often take that as just a bare command for everybody, and I do think that applies. Now, obviously, the way letters were read in the New Testament most of the time a letter gets dispersed, goes out to churches. Who stands up and reads the letter in the churches? Who's going to read it first? It's often going to be the leaders, going to be the pastors, going to be the elders. Same thing, elder, pastor, all that stuff. Right? So they're going to end up reading it. So, uh, and, and, and often the people who are the, the ones reading it are also the ones in authority, also the ones teaching. And even here, James is warning them. Right? He I think he's telling the whole church, brothers in general, but I do think that there's been a point in application this whole time throughout the letter of when he says brothers, he has in mind too the pastors and elders of this church, people who are in leadership. 
And the reason why I'm saying that is because as we go through these next couple of verses, I don't think when he's referring to the body that he's strictly referring to your personal self, right? Because sometimes we can refer to ourself as that, like myself or my body. And you don't always mean like physically, like my arm and my leg. You can use that kind of terminology. But, but, but I think when, the, especially when he gives these examples of putting a bit into the mouth and guiding something and a rudder steering a ship to guide the ship, that he has in mind the whole body of the church being guided and directed by certain kinds of speech. So when we get the, the singular command in this section, which is, not many of you should teach my brothers. I think it's first a warning here to the pastors. It, it, it is a warning to these leaders. Not many of you should just get up and start blabbing whatever is on your mind or, or just start speaking out in uncontroll. Like, there, there should be some, there, there should be a, uh, an evaluation made before you get up and speak. And the biggest reason is this, that we know that we who teach will be what? We will be judged with greater strictness. Now, you need to hear that too with, okay, it sounds like when people who teach within the church then get to God on the day of judgment, you know, they're, they're going to be like groveling at Jesus' feet. Well, brethren, like we talked about before, judgment can be a neutral term to describe making a proper judgment of either good or bad. A judgment doesn't always mean bad. It can mean a good judgment. But it should still put into the minds of those who teach. When I stand before the Lord, God is going to hold me to a stricter standard because I was responsible for what was said. Now, what we want to hear, like in, like in Matthew's gospel, is what? Well done, good and faithful servant. Maybe as a teacher, you had a few more talents than other people in the church, and you did well with them. Well done. And brethren, that is what we, that's what me and Manny and Nick, we hear, we labor for. But it is a warning to us. But brethren, listen, I don't want us to get lost on, on the pastor thing, because I do think embedded in this book is something that goes out to the whole body. Not many should teach. And brethren, I'll say this, especially for the men in this room. It can be a very tempting thing in our day, especially when you respect certain men who get up and teach, right? It, when you have people that you listen to all the time and you read their books and you see them up there teaching, you see them up there influencing other men, other churches, other bodies, and you get into the mind, oh, I would really like to do that. I, I really want to be able to do that kind of thing. And sometimes people get propelled to want to do something that, brethren, guess what? They've not actually been called to do. And James is bringing us back here to just the sober reality Teaching is such an important thing, not just because of some positional thing, but because of its effect, what it's supposed to do. Brethren, when we stand up here and teach, and this is, this is a thing that I know is for Nick and for Manny and for myself. Brethren, it causes you to, it ought to, cause you to tremble. I'm going to come up here and I'm going to say something and it's going to have an effect on my people every single week. 
I am changing the rudder a slight degree left or a slight degree right every single week. Or Nick's doing it every single week. Or Manny's doing it every single week. Brethren, and we're responsible for the destination that we end up. We're responsible for what happens in here. And so listen, especially young men in here, even if you have a desire for the ministry or, or, or you just have a desire to teach or to be in any kind of position of authority, take it with a just a... Just, uh, t- just take it with uh, that kind of warning right there and, and think to, you, uh, to yourself, is this just something that I want to do or is this something that I know that I've been called to do? Because, brethren, those things are a lot different. And we live in a culture now where, guess what? You can pay $100 and go get a website and a microphone and you can say whatever you want and go post it and have people listen to it and have people follow you, brethren. That is all over the place in our day. And guess what? Not many should be doing that. How many people are out there opening up their mouths, saying all sorts of things, lots of people following after, but brethren, they shouldn't be doing that. They could either be leading people down a bad path. Brethren, they may not even be qualified. We don't even know what their life was like. Brethren, brethren it's, just a, it's a very serious thing. That thing actually steers people. Believe it. It steers people. It directs people. It guides people. It's, it's giving someone a destination. And so we need to just... We need, we need to take that for what it's worth. James is telling us not many should. And I don't think he's just suggesting this. I think he recognizes when, when there is this abundance for all, everyone in the church to always want to get up and to teach and to guide and direct, brethren, there might be a problem. There, 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 there might be an issue that's going on, and, and, and it might be an issue of the tongue and just simply not having self-control over the tongue. So second right here, this is what he says in verse 2. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a mature man, able also, here it is, to bridle his whole body. So once again, I think this applies to the individual. I think it applies to the corporate. I really think that there's also an application here to us as pastors. But brethren, this is the whole point of the warning, right? When there's a lack of control in the tongue, and there are many teachers, and there are many voices, and and there's no self-control. Brethren, it's going to lead to a, a, a person and a people who are not bridled. I mean, you guys think about that imagery. I mean, especially in three when he goes into the horse. I mean, it's such a good image. And I think... James is very wise, right? He, he knows of the image and he uses that image of the horse. You think when, someone, when the horse is bridled, it's got that bit in its mouth. I mean, it's got all that stuff on it. It is to tame that thing. I mean, you guys ever seen a movie or something or maybe you're out on the farm? You've seen a wild horse? I mean, and just what it can do and its power and just, its, it's just the raw power that it has. And then you see a horse that's got its bit and it's bridled, and it's controlled, and it is just this beautiful picture of power and beauty just combined together, and this thing is just, it, it's controlled. And he's saying, listen, this is why. Because we all stumble in many ways. I mean, he's recognizing that all of us do. He says, we all, right? Brother, do we not all recognize that? Do we all not stumble in many ways in, here, in our church? In our lives? Yes, brethren, I I stumbled yesterday and I stumbled this morning and you're going to stumble tomorrow. And so he's just, he's trying to remind us, listen, the reason for this is, brethren, we all stumble, right? 
And if someone doesn't, he's showing himself to be a mature man. And in doing so, he's showing he's able to control the body. Yes, his own, but I think he's saying the church. Because he's able to take what could be a, just a, a dynamite explosion at any second, and he's able to contain it and control it and mold it and guide it and direct it for good purpose. And brethren, that is the whole reason for why he gives that command. Why we should think, regardless, and here's this, regardless if you ever are a teacher, brethren, this applies directly to you now. Regardless if you ever teach in a formal capacity in the church or not, brethren, listen, you will be teaching somebody. At every point in your life, somebody is learning from what they're seeing from you and what they're hearing from you. And we need to think, we all stumble in many ways. So if someone is going to open up their mouth and they're going to teach and they're going to guide that ship and they're going to direct that horse, brethren, we need to make sure, mature man, why? So that the body is bridled. The body's not out of control. The body is not a, a, a tamed horse let out loose and now it's running wild and causing havoc. And I want us to think about that in a couple of different ways. And, and brothers, well, I've already mentioned you guys, but... This struck me just going through it again of just the seriousness of our calling and what God requires of us in our tongues. And church, listen, that means that requires it of you to make sure we are like this. This is not just Manny and Nick and Aaron self-policing themselves and, 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 or just each other. Brethren, you are responsible. As Jesus says, you've been given the keys of the kingdom in heaven to bind and to loose. Who's in and who's out? Which means you have authority, real authority as a regular Christian to look at your pastors and to make sure mature men handling and bridling the whole body as a mature man. And brethren, that means for pastors, for us, we have a serious responsibility to make sure that we contain and control our speech. Because brethren, listen, it's very easy in our, in our modern day to look at pastors who are weak in the pulpit, who, who don't hold to any sort of conviction, who give up biblical truth, who do all sorts of things that we look at and go, oh, the man's spineless, and then to swing over to the other way, and all you have is a rude and brash and just a, just a rough guy who all he wants to do is spout uh, correct doctrine and, and bruise people up for bad doctrine, but he's just a rough and tumble guy, and he never controls what he says. He just spouts off all the time about what he says. And brethren, listen, pastors should not be those kind of people. Your pastors should not be those kind of people. You should think, my pastor, there's a season for that word and the season for that word, and he knows how to control his tongue. But brethren, there's another thing that I think maybe is not a direct application of this, but is something that we all have to think of. And I'm Man, I can think of everyone in here because you all have some kind of role in life, and especially moms and, and having kids in here. Or you're married and you're a, you're a, a husband or a wife. Or have you not been put in a position? Is that not something God has put you in? And you actually, I mean, ladies in here, you're married and you have kids. Does God expect you to run your house a certain way? He does. Does He expect you to raise up your kids in a certain way? He most certainly does. Husbands, does he expect you to treat your wife a certain way? Oh, he does. 
And then, ladies, does, does he expect you to regard your husband in a certain way? Oh, he does. And it, and it goes on. Children, you are expected to obey your parents, right? Yes. Brethren, we all have a position. It may not be the formal pastoral ministry. It may not be a teaching position. But listen, brethren, you have a position in which God has placed you. And how we act, and especially how we speak, is important. And then what happens if the tongue's not controlled in the family? I mean, what happens? Chaos. What happens when a child's tongue is not controlled in the family? Chaos. What happens when a husband's uh, tongue is not controlled towards wife? Chaos. What happens when a wife's tongue is not controlled towards her husband? Chaos. Brethren, listen, this applies to all of us here. You all have been given some delegated authority, maybe greater, maybe lower, and it doesn't matter which one it is. God's given you that authority by the word. Even as a Christian, brethren, you have been given some level of authority, and we need to think, man, I need to be a mature man or woman because my tongue will affect my ability to bridle my body, whether me or my family or my kids or the church. Brethren, it goes across the board. So don't think it's just something for pastors or people who might teach in the future who may not be pastors. Brethren, this comes right down to you, falls in your lap, and it does so for a reason. Brethren, we all stumble in many ways, and we need to think about that. We need to be able to bridle our tongue. And brethren, another, another one. And, and, and this one I, I, I thought about as I was reading, because I think about, I don't know, uh, some of you guys listen to a lot of stuff in here. You listen to a lot of podcasts, you read all that stuff. And, and I don't know if you guys follow enough just things going on in our cultural moment. I think you should to some extent. Don't waste your whole time doing it. But there is a lot of things going on in the culture where people are reacting to certain things. And it's happening within the church. And a lot of young men, they feel disenfranchised by a past generation. They're looking for father figures because they got father hunger. And you know where they're going? They're going to all these guys who are they're, they're secular people. But you know what? They're telling them to do things that people in the church never told them to do. Right? Wake up on time, young man. Okay, I guess I'll start doing that because I have no order in my life. Make your bed, young man. Go get a job. Hold on to a girl. You know, do, go, do, go do all sorts of these things. Quit being a wimp. You know, we got that kind of thing going on. And, does this, and, and is there a part where people need to he, hear that? Well, of course, brethren. That's the Proverbs just put into modern-day English, right? But, brethren, we need to be careful by this because, listen, what you listen to, what you say in informal conversation, what you constantly are putting in your ear in informal ways, whether you're listening to stuff, whether you're reading to stuff, brother, whether you're talking to somebody right here after, after church for fellowship, brother, we need to think all of life, all of speech is forming my ability to either bridle my tongue and to be a mature man, knowing how to use it, or it's sending me the opposite direction. I'm loose with my tongue. I say whatever I want with my tongue. I have no discretion with my tongue. I listen to guys who have no discretion with their tongue, and I think that's what it means to be a man, or whatever. Brethren, we need to take that as we, as we hear this thing and think, brethren, all the way down to the most informal thing. The tongue will be influenced. Now listen. 
That doesn't mean go jump into massive introspection tonight. I'm going to go through everything I listen to, label it out, I'm going to timestamp it, and then I'm going to make sure that it's okay to either listen to or not listen to. Brethren, I'm just saying it goes down to the most basic level. How you grow up, I mean, think about this. How do you grow up to become mature from a child to an adult? Baby steps, right? It's, you're plodding along. It's one step in the right direction. It's another step in the right direction. It's another step in the right direction until you reach maturehood. And guess what? Someone goes, well, how did you become so mature? How are you able to control your tongue? How are you able to do all these things? Brethren, you know how it didn't happen? It didn't happen overnight. You're not going to find a mature man or a mature woman who became one overnight. And brethren, you will not bridle your tongue overnight. You must, at the, at, at the very foundation, begin to, as Paul says, and he says this over here in Philippians, and I just love this verse because we talk about it a lot in our house. Paul says this, finally, brothers, listen. Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and that's an important word, not mediocrity, excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Brethren, in that kind of, that, that living that kind of life for, um, it's like how he says it in the Psalms too. I'm not going to put any unclean thing before my eyes. I'm going to give myself to good things. Brethren, you'll be surprised in five years you gave yourself to good things, pure things, beautiful things, commendable things. You realize, wow, it has a control on my tongue. It, it has a control on my ability to control my speech. So, brethren, I think those are areas of application where we can really take just that basic command. Not many of us should teach and say, you know what? Not many of us should just say whatever we want when we want. Not many of us should just get up and start spouting our next idea that we haven't thought through. Brethren, it is a good, humble, right and a, a, in a mature thing to know I will bridle my tongue. I know that if I say something, I can turn this ship in the other direction in a moment. So let's get into these examples then that he uses here in verses 3, three through 5. So let's read this. It says, If we put bit into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So I've already given a little bit of explanation, but I'm sure because I did it. I mean, sometimes you hear things in the Bible and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then someone goes, what's a bit? And you're probably like, no clue what a bit is. We might have two people in here who know what a bit is in the, in the mouth of a horse. So I looked it up, Googled it, good old Google, typed in a bit, right? Okay, now I know what it is, know what a bit is, right? You, you see it when they're, you know, you see when you see them racing horses, right? They got that thing right there in their mouth like that, okay? So you, you have these two things and then the rudder of a ship. Now, most of you probably could have a better idea of that, but how many of you have actually seen the rudder of a ship? I mean, actually seen one. Okay, you could, like if a, if a ship's being made, 
right? And it's still like in its like, I don't know what they call it. It's dock or it's building bay. I don't know what it's called. Just bear with me, right? But sometimes you see it. But how many of you watch it either on TV or you've been on a cruise? You look down and you actually saw the rudder of a ship. Probably almost none of us unless you're building on them. Now, brethren, it's very interesting. He uses both of these analogies for something that one, in the first case, is small and almost un like completely unseen unless you're up and close with this horse. And for the ship, brethren, how big is a rudder? Like if you think about the Titanic, gargantuan. I know there's bigger ones, whatever. Everyone knows the Titanic. Titanic. How big is the rudder compared to the rest of the ship? It's tiny. Like it's, it's like a speck of dust compared to the rest of the ship. It's this small thing. But what does it do to that big old ship? Guides the whole thing. My brother, so I want us to think about these two items. And I want us to think about two things that I think he's drawing out and using these examples. The first one is the bit in the horse's mouth is tiny. Brother, we are talking about something that fits in the palm of your hand. And yet it tames the power of a horse. I mean, does anyone want a Ford Mustang in here if I gave it to you for free? Right? And you think, yeah, power, right? Well, there's the idea, right? People have noticed a lot of power in horses. And, and you get all the warnings in Scripture. Why won't you, don't you trust in chariots and horses? Because there's power in them. Real power, brethren, that God gave it to them. But the idea is this. This little, small, insignificant thing, when it's in the palm of your hand, becomes the great controller of a wild Mustang. I mean, imagine that. You had never tamed a horse before. There's the untamed horse. All your ancestors know no one's ever been able to tame those horses. And you go, you ever tried a bit? You laugh at that person. That little thing's going to tame a horse? You know, good luck. But brother, that, that, that's the whole point of his using that analogy. Something that little has the ability to tame all that. And with the ship. I mean, brethren, unless you're building this thing, you never see it. And that's the whole point. Not only is the bit small, the rudder is almost totally unseen. It's like an obscure part of the ship. Everyone marvels at a ship in the water and its beauty, and they don't go, wow, what a beautiful rudder on that ship, right? Because you don't see it. It's, it's not cared about. But brethren, that rudder can turn something or fail to turn something like the Titanic. But you've got to think about that. The, the tongue is like both of these things. It is so small and insignificant, and it is almost entirely unseen. And James is telling us, listen, if you do this so that you can guide the body, and you do this so that you can steer the ship at the will, right? At the absolute will of the pilot, you can control a large vessel. He says, so also. The tongue is a small member, insignificant and almost unseen, and yet it boasts, brethren. I mean, think about that. He's personifying your tongue. Your tongue stands up and goes, I guide that thing, that image bearer of God. Brethren, it boasts of great things. And you need to think then of what those things accomplish. Those horses, what they accomplish. That ship, what it accomplishes. Brethren, so too does the tongue accomplish great things and can if it is guided by that bit, or by that rudder, or by that tongue. And now this is going to seem 
almost pointless to say, but I want it to just, this is one you need to like, you know this truth, but you need to let it settle on you a little bit. So what's the trade-off for that? Like, and we're reading a book right now and he says cash value all the time. What's the cash value for verses one through five? Well, what's the importance of him? He's going to get into it in our last section. But brethren, why give those two examples? Like, why, why? Why? Why does he go into the examples? And I think he's trying to tell, to tell them this. Brethren, speech is not cheap. It's not insignificant. And he has to tell us this. Because we stumble. And you know where we always stumble with, brethren? I mean, where do you stumble with with your friends and your family and your church? I'll tell you, it's not kicking people most of the time. It's here with your mouth. And you know why? It's because you forget and you grow neglectful and you think, you know, like, like, the, like the children's thing, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Brethren, not true. Words are not cheap. Words have consequences. And James wants you to know if it can be like a bit, if it can be like a rudder on a ship, your speech needs to be thought of in the terms of directing a boat or guiding a horse to an accomplishment. That warriors who ride horses accomplish great deeds on the battlefield and ships carry out mighty deeds on the sea by their smallest components. And he wants you to think about that. Don't take speech so lightly because it's not a light thing. Our tongue, as he's going to say, is a fire. Brethren, we just need to do that. That sounds like such a basic thing to think. How do I apply this first? Take your speech seriously. You want to grow up into maturity as a Christian like Christ grew up into maturity like his father? Brethren, what did we read there in Isaiah? He opened not his mouth. A bridled tongue, the perfect bridled tongue right there. So if you want to do it, brethren... Jesus, you know what Jesus thought to himself? He didn't think some abstract theological, you know how I control the, you know, and just goes off into oblivion about theology. He goes, yep, I'm going to control that thing because God said so, because it's a serious thing. Yeah, Jesus thought simple things like that. The speech is a serious thing. I'm going to control that thing. And brethren, it, it should also, it, we, sh we should want to do this too, right? This shouldn't just be something, man, I got so many things to do with my, you know, my tongue and my mouth when I get home. Brethren, you have a, an ability to do great things. The tongue can boast in great things, but it has to be bridled. And so we should think, not only, not only is this important because speech is such a serious thing when it goes wrong, but brethren, it's a guiding thing that can lead to great things, right? Words can give life, <laughs> Right? As we preach the gospel, or as Paul's going to say later, and all over the New Testament, bless and do not curse. Brethren, your words have life-giving power. Now, I'm not saying this is magic. I'm not saying it's an incantation. But brethren, when you speak God's word and you live out to bless people and not curse them, it will have an effect. And we need to think there's a great effect that can be had by my mouth. And third, brethren, is this. We need to also stop and think, if we're going to examine our speech, we need to ask ourselves, where am I going with my mouth? I mean, if I'm going to put a bit into a horse, the question is, for what purpose are you going to get on the horse to control it? Do what? 
What purpose are you getting behind the wheel of a ship to turn the rudder to take the ship somewhere? Where's the destination? Where is the goal? And James is going to say later that it's going to be the harvest of righteousness, that you would receive the crown of life, that you would be exalted as you're now being humbled. And he's trying to remind them, you tell me what your speech sounds like. Does it sound like you're going down the path where you're going to be exalted later because you humbled yourself? Or does your speech sound like you're going down a different path where you're going to be humbled. I mean, that's what, that's what Jesus says. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Brethren, think, when I'm home, when I'm by myself, when I'm at work, when I'm in the church, where are we going with our tongue? I mean, that should, that, that'll help us. It'll help us choose our words. Brethren, if I want unity in the church, I'm not going to make some cracking joke at someone who's been here for a month, right? I may offend them. And now I just caused an issue that didn't need to be caused because I just couldn't control my mouth. So brethren, just, we want to think about that because that should help us. It, not just as a negative thing, but man, we could do great things and we could go somewhere, right? And we know we're going somewhere as, as, as we've sang that song a, a few times outside of church. We're going, we're sailing to Golden Shores, right? That's where we're going. We're sailing to Eden Shores. That's where we're going. We have a destination. Brethren, you don't get there when you have no control over your tongue. And lastly, brethren, I, I think this is going to be the key because he talks about this later. I think the key to someone to begin to learn how to control their tongue is prayer. I mean, he's going to tie that in. He ties it in at the beginning. He ties it in at the end. You have them as bookends of this book. And then right at the middle is you don't have control over your tongue. And I'll tell you this, brethren, somebody who does not have control over their tongue, it is an indication of their prayer life. And I'm just saying that because, brethren, where do you make your petitions made known? Out loud in front of people? Brethren, you make your petitions made known to the Lord. Where do you bring your grievances to? In front of the church? Gossiping on the side? No, brethren, you bring your petitions to the Lord. Your grievances to the Lord. What, what do you do when you're angry like David? Brethren, you call out to God and His promises. And then he says what? Be angry, don't sin. Go and lay down and ponder upon this thing. As we just read that in Psalm 5, it, it, it came and I was like, great, I'm glad we read that this morning. Brethren, listen. Prayer is the bit in the rudder of helping you control your mouth. But someone who has no control of their mouth, brethren, it tells me there's a degree. They're not taking anything to the Lord. They're always mad and have grievances. Brethren, where you have ever sat down and, and sat with the Lord and aired out your grievances to him? That's what David does. There's nothing unbiblical about that. But do you know what's unbiblical about that? Airing your grievance for everyone to smell and to waft in. And brethren, we need to think about that. And we need to be motivated by that. I can learn to do that today. I could be more like Christ today. I'll go home and I will pray to my Father. And I will air out those things to Him. I will pray to Him and ask for Him to give me a bridal tongue. I will go out and make my petitions made known to Him before I go and air out whatever I think I need to say. Brethren, the rudder and the bit of the Christian life is going to be prayer. We need to pray. Because as he says there earlier in James... These are what these people are not doing. How do I know this? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask, brethren. Well, how do I know they're not doing this? Because they're doing things outside of wisdom. They're doing things, as the Proverbs say in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom and knowledge. Brethren, these people are acting in a way where they don't fear God, and in doing so, they don't have wisdom. 
And they're not praying and asking for things in accordance with God's word. They're not fearing the Lord. This whole thing's like a circle. And, and he's just, brethren, he's reminding us this. And I just, that application to me just struck me. Brethren, do I have a problem that I want to air out and I just feel like I can't control myself? I need to go into prayer. I don't need to go and talk to someone about it. I don't need to go out and air my grievance to somebody. I need to get before the Lord and I need to deal with this thing. And guess what, brethren? When you do so and you go and ask for wisdom because you're lacking it in the moment, he says if you come in faith, he will give it to you. So, brethren, this last section right here. Let's look at verse 6 and we'll read here right to the end. Well, it's kind of verse 5. It's a terrible verse division. I don't know why they did it. So right there, 5b. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So, brethren, as we hit this second half and this last section we're going to deal with, here is where James is going to really, he's bringing it home to them. He's given them the command, and he's given them two examples to explain out his command. Now he's having to show what is happening to them. <laughs> They're not following that instruction, which is why they needed verse 5-ish into 6 is telling us what is going on in this church or in these churches among these people. And I want to just point out a few things and then I want us to just conclude on a, on a few more thoughts. But uh, this first one here is you got this linking back right here of the fiery tongue and its staining effect, right? Here's the effect that their brash, crude, vulgar, cursing mouth is having upon the body. It's setting it afire. It's setting it ablaze. And he's saying the result is then this, staining the whole body. And if you go back there in James, when Manny preached chapter 1, what was the thing that we read there at the end in 27? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And now he's telling them, brethren, you're stained. Because a fire has been set ablaze by such a small thing, the tongue. Your place is lit up ablaze because of your tongues. And he's noting that to them. It has stained the body. Right? It set the whole course of life on fire. And brethren, as he's going to conclude in chapter 3 at the end when Manny preaches, he says something very similar here set on fire. Now you could render that, the, the, the language is interesting there. You can render it as it's setting itself on fire by hell. The tongue is so destructive that it is setting its own self on fire by the fire of hell. 
That's how devilish this kind of thing is. And he's going to say that later, later in three. He says, what you're doing, this is not the wisdom that comes from above. This is not the wisdom that you ask for, that you get. This is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, hellfire. And he's telling them, you're being stained by this kind of thing. That little flaming tongue you got, it set everything on fire like a forest blaze. Now, second, he's going to describe uh, this right here with the tongue. It's really interesting he does that. So he says that there in six. And then in seven, he, I mean, he says four. So you're thinking, okay, he's making an argument here, right? So he says, tongue is a fire, world of unrighteousness. The tongue set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. For, and you're thinking, okay, what's, why is that? And he says, every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Whoa, okay, what? So he, he's progressing in his argument here, but he's trying to draw you back to something, right? When you think about that, where do you hear about beast and bird, reptile and sea creature? Kind of in that order, right? Come on, this is my favorite thing to do. There you go. There we go. Genesis, right? So he's trying to draw you back to some imagery here. And he's saying, okay, the, the, the tongue that's set among our members, right? And the thing that's staining the whole body, having this profound effect, he's saying this is the reason why. But then he lists kind of a weird argument. They're like, how does that prove your argument in six by saying, well, every kind of beast, bird, reptile, and sea creature can be tamed and maintained by mankind? You're thinking, well, isn't that a good thing, right? Well, how's that proving his argument, but I think he's using that, uh, not, not as like, okay, that's how it's done, but he's trying to draw you back to an idea. How did God have dominion over the things he was making? What did he do? How did God bring forth things into being? He spoke. He spoke a word, and what did he say? He called something something. He spoke, and that thing that he called came into being, right? We believe that as Christians. When God speaks, he actually spoke this whole thing into existence. It didn't go boom and come into the existence. God spoke and it came. And so what is Adam doing then when God makes him and puts him into the garden? What is Adam's task in the garden? What is he supposed to do with all the things that God made? Yeah, he's supposed to mimic God in this. God speaks, he names something, and in doing so, he makes it and has dominion over it. And now Adam is supposed to take the animals that he was already told in chapter 1 of Genesis to have dominion over everything. How is Adam going to do this? He's going to name it and he's going to do throw through speech and show that he has the power to take dominion over these things because God has given it to him. And so I think the argument like is going something like this. The tongue that's set among our members can stain the whole body and can set on, uh, on fire the entire course of life and even the fire of hell itself can burn our tongue because the tongue is something that God made to have that kind of effect, that kind of power. It was one in which it was supposed to take dominion and it is not doing so, right? Because you think of what Adam did with his tongue. He didn't speak something he should have and we all fell. And so, brother, I think he's trying to tie that idea together. Why is it that the tongue can set our members ablaze and it can stain everything? Because the tongue was given to have dominion over everything. And if you use the tongue wrongly, then it has the ability to stain everything. In the same way, it has the ability to take dominion over everything. 
So here we get into this third part right here, right? So the, he, he's, he's indicting them here. Your tongues are not controlled. And he's probably indicting some of these leaders. You have some uncontrolled tongues and your people are unbridled right now. And guess what? The tongue that you should be using to take dominion with, like Adam should have done, you're not doing. And now, it's, now your own tongue's being set ablaze because you don't have any control over this. And then he's going he's gonna, to... Um, He's going to start uh, indicting them with this in 9. With it, so he's talking about the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. So brethren, here is probably, I think, the most difficult and hard section, and this will be the last thing I'll take time to explain as we wrap up, because it's heavy. I mean, it's a heavy thing, but also it, it's, it's a thing in Scripture where uh, it takes some thinking for us to know how does this all work out together in Scripture and what was the thing that was going on in James's day that he's telling them, listen, you're blessing God and you're blessing Jesus and the Father with your lips, and, and then here you are on the other end of it, cursing all sorts of different people with your mouth, and you got this restless evil just flowing out of you. And so... I, I want to make a few connections here, and then I think you'll kind of see what, where I'm going with this and the argument I'm making. Because what we need to be careful here with, brethren, is understanding this rightly, without putting caveats on it, but also being able to say, how do we take this section of Scripture, and how do we marry it with another section of Scripture? Right? Because, brother, let me ask you this. Did hard words ever come out of Jesus' mouth? They most certainly did. What kind of words came out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew 23? Woes. A woe is not a good thing. What's a woe? I know we say that word all the time. Yeah, you're pronouncing a judgment upon somebody. So Jesus did that, and, he, and he's not wrong in doing it. So one, we don't want to caveat this section, but we also want to be able to say, how are these sections like, how can James say that, and then how can Jesus do something like that? Or how can the prophets do something like that? Or how can sometimes people in the New Testament do things like that and speak in a very hard way? So here's a few points here in the text, and then I want to draw us to some scripture so we can kind of see, I think, what's going on here. So notice first, keep your finger there. Now in chapter 4, he's going, to be, um, he's going to be drawing out a number of different things here in chapter 4. And I'm only going to point a few of these things out because we're obviously going to preach it. So, But here's a couple things that are going on because you're thinking, okay, the, the body is being unbridled because of these fiery tongues, his lack of control. And in four, he asks a question, but it's rhetorical because he just got done condemning them for the thing that's causing these issues in the church. So in four one, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And you know what? It's like when you ask your kid, do you know why you're in trouble? And they're like, they know, right? And that's how they should be reacting. Well, we know. We don't have control over our tongues. And guess what it's doing in the, in the church, brethren? It's causing quarrels and fights among people in the church, right? And then later on in 11, he's going to give them another negative command because they're doing this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And these are people speaking evil against one another, right? This is what they're doing over here in three. These people are cursing one another. And brethren, what it's leading to is this. In two, he says, or chapter four, verse two, this is, what's, this is the result. You desire 
and do not have. Are they going to the Lord and asking in prayer and faith? Nope. So you murder. You're stirring up your passions through your speech and you can't control your tongue because your passions aren't controlled. And what's happening within the church? Murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Brethren, this is the hellfire that has been set ablaze in these places because the tongue's been unbridled. So I want you to see that. Because in dying then, when it says, with it we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God, I want us to understand what he's talking about when he says cursing. Because I think sometimes in our minds we can think a hard thing, cursing, they're very similar. It can be very hard in our minds to separate those two ideas. But I think there is and can be and needs to be some separation of those ideas, right? Second is going to be this. Brother, we don't want to isolate this text, not only from James, which he's going to bring out later, what kind of cursing is happening. Well, we see what kind of cursing is happening. It, it's, it's, um, it, it's the kind of cursing where you're speaking evil against a brother and then you're acting against them and fighting. And in, and in some places, they're killing people. And we don't want to divorce it from that. And we also don't want to divorce James from the rest of the Bible. And, and when you look at the rest of the Bible, you start to see people say some very hard things about people. Sometimes they're very gruesome and sometimes they're very graphic. And you know what they would not be charged with? Cursing somebody. So we, we don't want to isolate that text. I want us to understand it in context in the rest of the Bible. And, but brethren, here, here's what I do want to do with this. I do want us to take it with its full force. I don't want us to learn, hey, in James, you know what? We learned, do not curse, just bless. But you know what? When you have a justification for saying something mean to someone, go ahead and say it. Because pastor said that there's differences with things. Don't go home and do that. Don't justify yourself in doing things. You think biblically, and you need to reason biblically. And so here's what I think James is alluding to with the cursing, so that we can take it with full force. Because the point of this is to do what? Bridle our tongues. Not so that our tongues become more fiery all the time. Not so that our tongues become more blunt and corrective and, and sharp and all these sorts of things. It's supposed to bridle it and control the power. If it's only making your tongue more of a sword, you're not obeying the passage. You're not doing it right. So I want to connect this with a few other parts of Scripture because this is not the only place where this topic gets brought up. So you guys can keep your finger there. I'm going to flip to a couple. I'm going to read them. I'm going to go quick because of time. But I want you to just hear these. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start here in verse 9. So here, Peter's doing something very similar. He's addressing churches and, and he's addressing people who need to hear certain things, right? So here's what he says to these Christians. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing for, and he's going to quote scripture here in Psalm, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. There it is. The, the, the tongue, right? Speaking evil, speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what's the thing that Peter is telling them to, to, to be careful in doing? Well, 
it seems to be a, a, a repayment of something. I'm going to curse you and say evil things, and I'm going to repay you for what you did to me because you have repayment on your mind. You have retribution on your mind. You have vengeance on your mind. You want vengeance. So you're willing to curse and to say all sorts of different things to get back at the person for what they did to you. And he says, don't do this, right? On the contrary, bless. Why? Because if you desire to love life and see good days, you're going to keep your tongue from doing that, those things. You're going to keep your tongue from wanting to exact revenge. You're going to keep your tongue and your passions at bay. Even when you're wronged, you're going to do that. Why? Because if you don't, the face of the Lord is against those who do what? Evil. And notice right there in the psalm, the psalmist can say, keep your mouth from evil things. And he says, and the Lord will judge the wicked. Brethren, those aren't contradictory things. You can say a hard, true statement. That is something grounded in the promise of God and also not be speaking evil against somebody, right? We got to see that there. So let's flip open to that psalm, Psalm 34. I want you to hear all this. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So here's the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days and, and that he may see good, right? This is the quotation. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, 15 is where he's going to really kind of pick this up because that's, that's what we read back in uh, Peter. But here's the rest of that section. I think it puts a little bit more context to it as well. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ear toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from earth. Then, or excuse me, when, verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. So brethren, notice again that even though we're repeating some of the same stuff, what the context is, right? This, this, is, this is somebody who's having to hear the, the, the psalmist speak, and he says, Oh, children, because they need to hear something. And he's telling them, Listen, keep your mouths from evil. And then he's reminding them why. Because something will happen to vindicate you. The eyes of the Lord will be towards you, righteous, if you seek to do good. But whose face is set against the ones who do evil? It's the Lord's. What's he going to do? To cut off the memory of them. Brethren, is that... In our modern vernacular, is that a nice thing to say? It's not, but brethren, it's not a curse. This is God who promises to do that. This is God who promises to enact that, and God can enact that, and He can do that, because God is just in doing so. He can perfectly enact that kind of thing. So once again, the psalmist wants us to be weary of cursing and reviling and repaying evil for evil. Guys, catch what I'm saying there. It's, it's returning it. And I think you get this the most spelled out in Paul. And he says this in Romans 12. Romans 12, beginning here in 14. Bless those who persecute you. So same thing. Sounds like James. Sounds like Jesus. Sounds like Peter. Sounds like the psalmist. Just sounds like he's ripping off the Bible again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Okay, there's that command again. Bless, don't curse. 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. So here's how you bless. I, th I think it's out, this is the outflowing of the command. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, right? What's haughty? Someone's going to have to be loud. 
Yes. If you think very highly of yourself, very proud, very haughty person, right? Don't be haughty, right? But associate with the lowly, which those people were not doing. They thought of themselves really high. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. I think this is how he is flushing out the do not curse. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, right? So you kind of get this idea fleshed out even more. Does this mean you just become a doormat for everybody? No, it doesn't. But it does mean, brethren, do whatever you can to live at peace with people. You go to the, 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 the lengths in to be able to do such a thing. And then 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will. Who's going to repay, brethren? I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. It's Jesus right here. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, here is, here is how in blessing you will bring God's enacted judgment down upon their head. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not overcome evil. Or do not be overcome by evil, but how do we overcome evil, brethren? Through good. So if curses are coming out of our mouth and it's resulting in us trying to repay evil for evil, then we are doing what James says not to do. Do not curse. Do not try to repay evil for evil. Do not try to avenge yourselves. Do not seek to revile for reviling. Because... Okay, you're thinking, okay, well, that sounds true, all right? But what, does, that, does that really fit so you can, there's a way, there's still a side where you can separate saying something hard or even something that's really fiery from cursing? Well, we, we need to, here's a few verses, and there's a million of these. I'm going to read some of these. So I just want you to listen to these. And I think you'll hear the distinction. Because in all the ones that I just read, the thing that is being warned about every single time is cursing that leads someone to repaying with vengeance or to, or to avenge themselves. But notice what you're actually commanded to do in the psalmist and other people say all the time in the scripture. Psalm 97.10. Oh, you who love the Lord. So stop. Who loves the Lord in here? Come on, who loves the Lord? Amen, brother. Uh, Nick's the only one, so I'm going to preach it to Nick. Nick loves the Lord. Hate evil. What? Right? So I'm not trying to confuse anybody. I'm just trying to show you. We had all those over there that are really true. Bless and do not curse. Don't seek to avenge yourself. Don't seek to revile for reviling. Don't meet the world with the world. Don't come at them with their own weapons. Brethren, how do we overcome? Bless. But that doesn't mean there are not things that we don't rightly hate, that we don't rightly abhor, and that we can't rightly speak out against. Psalm 97.10, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints and he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. How are you delivered from the hand of the wicked? What happens to them? They're cut off from the face of the earth, brethren, and you should rejoice at that like they do in Revelation 6. And the saints under the altar rejoice that vengeance has been brought upon their evil doers. So next one, Psalm 101, just a few chapters ahead, Psalm 101. 
I said this earlier. This is one of our favorite psalms. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Amen. I hate the work of those who fall away. Shall not cling to me. Right? He says he hates it. He hates evil. And he hates the work of those who fall away, those who are evil, right? A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil, right? He says he hates those kind of works. Amos. Right after Joel. Amos 5.15. Hate evil. This is a command. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Right? So in order to, for that grace to come down, that blessing to come down, they needed to hate something, brethren. They needed to hate evil. Here's another one. This one would just, this, you know, this could really throw us a loop too because we just read this as a text for my other case. But this is back in Romans, Romans chapter 12. So the one we read earlier was there beginning in 14. But now we're going backwards a little bit. Back to verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor. What is to abhor? Despise. To hate. Something abhors you. It is just ugly and disgusting and just it's something you don't want in your face. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And just to bury the hatchet on this one. Psalm 139. David says this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. You think, that sounds bad enough. He just said, God, slay them. Men of blood, have them depart from me. Well, if you go away from the presence of the king, it's like going away from the presence of Yahweh. It's not good. You go away from the presence of Yahweh because you're dying. But then 21, do I not? He says, Lord, he's, I mean, he's talking to the Lord. Lord, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. So, brethren, I... I'm not doing that to confuse us this morning, but I think it's to draw out this point. And so here's my point. James is having to tell these people, you need to put your vulgar, cursing lips away because it's inciting you and causing you and comes from unfulfilled desires 
where you go and you repay people for what they did to you. You revile in return. You seek to avenge yourself. And in chapter 4, what are they going out and do? Brethren, they're quarreling. They're fighting. They're not getting theirs. They, they don't think the promises of God are coming to pass upon them. They're suffering and they're fighting with one another. They're quarreling with one another. They're letting people get up with fiery speeches and rile them up to go out and to do things, brethren, like a revolt, like a revolution. And they're going out, brethren, and they're even killing people, killing each other. They're coveting and they're fighting with one another, brother. This is a bad thing. And, and, and so when James says, do not curse because you guys are blessing the Lord and the Father at the same time as you're cursing people who are made in the likeness of God. And brethren, in their own context, they're cursing their own brethren. They're seeking to avenge themselves and to, and to repay evil for evil. And brethren, you know what they're not doing? They are not entrusting themselves to the one who will see them through the fire. They are not doing what Peter says later on when he's addressing these very same things. Why is Jesus our great example, brethren? Because in 1 Peter 2, he says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow him in his steps. Well, what did he do? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, what did he did not do, brethren? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, when harm was done to him, what did he do not do in return? He did not threaten, but continued entrusting to himself, to him who judges justly. Brethren, he perfectly did what Paul tells us to do. Don't repay evil for evil, brethren. Entrust yourselves to the one who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So brethren, as we think about this then, and as, and as he ends right here, here's what he says right here at the end. Because he, now he's asking, like, why does he end with this question? Because that seems like a good way to end. But he wants you to end on this question because it's for you to think about now. He's going to ask right here. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Which means, brethren, it's possible. But now here's what you've got to ask yourself. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? You ask yourself that. You don't need to answer out loud. Ask yourself that. Or, brethren, can a fig tree bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs. Brother, and he wants us to ask those questions because he wants us to remind, he wants to remind us of this. You are being, he's, he's telling them, you are being hypocrites in this. The same Lord that you confess, the same one who you bless with your lips was the same one who did not do what you're doing. And so though you should be a spring of life, a fresh water, right? Though you should be a fig tree bearing its fruit in its season, you were not. <laughs> you have salt water coming from you, though you should be a spring coming forth fresh water, right? You, these things are not being true of you. And, and, and he's trying to tell them, you guys don't have integrity in this. And he wants you to ask this question then, brethren, so that we would. We would have purity in this. We would have integrity in this. That we would be a source of purity. Because, brethren, all these things are description of, do we have life? So as we end right here, church, then 
Answer that question in your mind as it comes to your speech. And then think, okay, I don't want to be that. So what do I do? Brethren, if any of you lacks wisdom, where do you need to go? Prayer. Learn to be the rudder and bit through prayer. And then hear the command. Not many of you, my brothers, should teach. Teach.